0: Terry has asked that we mark him number seventy one and upon doing so, and as you've marked that, and I would ask you think with me about something we hinted at, at least during the opening portion of the lesson this morning. A new beginning. I suspect none of us need to be reminded that this is the last day, day number three hundred and sixty five of the year two thousand and six. Once the next few hours roll away, it will then be recollected as history and no more. Forever, no moment can be relived. No second can be redone. No thought or word can be, in fact, retaken or, in fact, redone any specific way. It will be history. And at that point, you and I will look forward to, if you will, a new year the year 2007, but as we think about what may lie ahead, none of us know that for certain. None of us can gaze into a crystal ball or can state with absolute certainty that which will lie in a month or even seven or eight months from now. But isn't it true that as the new year dawns, it does in fact cause us on many occasions to ponder and to think about new beginnings. It may well be that you have thought about a New Year's resolution. Many of us do, many people do, and as they think about those resolutions, it's almost invariably some desired change in life, whatever that may be, and for each given person that may be something exciting, something new, something that will produce a positive and dramatic impact in their life. But it's also true that as one thinks about new beginnings, that has a spiritual idea in it as well. This evening, would you think with me about new beginnings? The Bible has much to say about them. By way of introduction, would you note with me some of the introductory thoughts that could be stated as follows. First of all, you and I should be eternally thankful that God is a God of new beginnings. And in a moment, we shall have much, much more to say about that. But isn't it interesting to just remark that the creation itself, God in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, chose to begin exactly and completely anew. For do we not read in Hebrews 11.3, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things that were made were not made of things which do appear. God started completely afresh. It's not that he took something and remade it. It was completely and absolutely new. But even in my life and yours, we have the capability of starting afresh. In yet so many cases, we're free moral agents. We can choose to make a change if that's needful. We can choose to tread a new path, to chart a new course, to in fact begin again. But what's more, isn't it true that the Christian life, in a very, very real way, is a new beginning. And as we look at that in just a moment, and as we look at other ideas found in God's word about new beginnings, I believe we'll all be refreshed and challenged as we look forward to the year two thousand and seven. to the extent that God blesses us with it, we can look at it from the perspective of freshness and newness. And that all depends on the revelation of God. With those thoughts stated, let us then look at our first observation about a new beginning. Could we not begin by making this concerted statement? In fact, we've made it earlier, but let's in fact put some more meat upon that discussion. God is a God of new beginnings. As often as we recollect and think about the nature of God's word, Let us rehearse some of the things that challenge us to ever remember the newness with which God is able to make things that once were bad or evil or less than desirable into something that is pristine and absolutely new. In Genesis chapter 5. We read there about a world on into the early part of chapter 6, a world that in verse 5 of Genesis 6 is described as follows. The thoughts of men's hearts were only evil continually. It was a world that was no longer pleasing and approved unto God. Mankind was living in a rebellious state toward Him, ignoring His word and treating one another despitefully. We notice, though, Easily that God made a decree, and he made a decision. He informed Noah that he was going to bring a flood of waters upon this earth, and note particularly at verses 17 and 18. He said, And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, all life. God made a decision then that in the seed of Noah to start afresh with a human family. It's true enough that all mankind were ultimately descended through Adam, but let's face it, we are all ultimately descended through Noah because God started everything afresh with Noah and the three boys. Can we not remember also in the text that I've noted, in chapter 8 as well as in chapter 9, God said with you, Noah, I will establish my covenant. God started all over. He didn't ultimately give up completely on the human family. He started afresh in the person of this just and righteous man named Noah. Genesis 6 verse 9. God apparently is a God of new beginnings. But notice another Old Testament example. This time considerably later. Notice that God's people, long since now removed from the time of Mount Sinai, they, the Jews, lived under the characteristics of the law of Moses, and the time came that they were such that God no longer approved of them. They had given up their faithfulness to him. They had turned their back upon him in rebellion. Question, did God ultimately cast them off and give up all hope on them? He did not. It's true he let them go into Babylonian captivity. It's true that for 70 years they served a foreign king and a foreign nation and no longer did they have access to Jerusalem, to the temple, and to the things of service that they preferred. But God didn't give up on them. Read with me Jeremiah 29. As we look at verses 10 through 14 of that chapter. Listen to the words of God as he speaks to this people who at that time were in Babylonian captivity. For thus saith the Lord, that after seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall you call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me, and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from all the nations, and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord and I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. Can you imagine the smile that must have come across the faces of those to whom Jeremiah spoke? God said you're going to come back home and haven't given up on you. You're going to be able to start again. God is a God of new beginnings. God gave that opportunity to know what? He has now given it to ancient Israel to come back to that land of Jerusalem, that land of Judea, and again they would be able to worship in the temple and to start again. It's an exciting thing to think that our God desires and wishes on many occasions a time of new beginnings. To say those two examples perhaps reminds us that in the New Testament. Can we not think of the Apostle Paul? In the early part of his life, of course, we would not call him an apostle. He was raised at the feet of that noted rabbi, Gamaliel, according to Acts 22, verses 3 and 4. And we so read about this man who, with great fervor and zeal and enthusiasm, persecuted Christians. In Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse number 1, we read of a man who, in his possession, had letters whereby that in going to Damascus he could imprison those that were Christians. But yet everything changed on that road to Damascus. This man never again would be the same. Paul, in fact, from that point onward, or later in Acts chapter 13, he was called Paul. But that individual at that time, we remember that a bright light shone about him and the Lord spoke with him. And from that moment onward, the remainder of his days were spent in completed and desired service with all his heart to the God whom he loved and to the Savior who washed his sins away. This man Paul had a new beginning. He even referred to that as he wrote to Timothy later in First Timothy 1. He said, I was the chiefest of sinners, but now God has blessed a favor toward me And he even noted to that young son in the faith of his the strength with which he felt he was able to defend the cause of the gospel, a man who knew a new beginning. These examples challenge us to realize that God in many ways is a God of new beginnings. Quite often when things seem hopeless, When they seem as though one can go no deeper, God will shine forth a beam of sunlight and allow an opening of new beginnings. He did that for Noah. He did that for Israel. He did that for Saul. It may well be that in my life or yours a thought redounds about some positive change that might well be made, God would be the first to encourage that change. He'd be the first by virtue of his word to encourage a closer walk with him, a brighter life drawn to the elements of Christianity, a powerful new aspect of service perhaps not realized in the year 2006 but could be in 2007. These things are, in fact, somewhat exciting, aren't they? God doesn't thus browbeat us when we're wrong. Rather, he rebukes us and encourages us to make those positive changes, and he will encourage us in those changes. Can we not then describe God as a God of long-suffering character? In 2 Peter 3, verse 9, that well-known text we read, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but as suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Perhaps you and I could realize then that the most vile of sinners, those who may well describe themselves as unforgivable, God says, not only can I, I will. If you will submit to the terms of obedience to me, God will transform that life. God is a God of new beginnings. But what about another observation about new beginnings? As we think further about the possibilities of these lessons, then I ask you to note with me that a new beginning involves and indicates a fundamental shift, a fundamental change. In fact, notice the word that is used in light of this itself, the word new, N-E-W that defines or identifies something which has not previously been appreciated in the same way. A person, for instance, may go and purchase a new car. Now, let us understand that for that description, that means that that car has not been owned or used by you or me before. But not only that, many other things that are new are described, and the word means the same thing. What about newness as it relates to the possibility of a new beginning? To start over, to begin in a way that's fresh and somewhat new. It may be here that we could do no better than to think about the newness that comes from obedience to Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, perhaps that text that we each think of so very often when we see someone baptized into Christ, There it says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. Paul, what do you mean? Let's retrace his steps. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, this realization then of a new creature is conditional upon... The statement that's involved in the if the word if though it's small identifies a condition doesn't it if an individual is in christ that person is a new creature those things prior that were old are in fact taken or passed away and all things have become new in what way is a person new when he or she obeys the gospel his or her outlook on life is not the way it was before. In prior days, that person was a slave to sin. Their master was the devil. But once that person has his or her sins washed away, that individual is not merely wet when they arise from that grave of baptism. They're far more than wet. They are cleansed. They are sanctified. They're justified in their whole. They're a new creature. Note Paul's statement in Romans 6 to that effect. Beginning in verse 1, he said, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Newness of life, Paul said. The thoughts itself is a remarkable one, isn't it? To realize that when a person is immersed in water, they are crucifying, putting to death the old man of sin and burying him. That's what one does with things that are dead. And then that which is raised is a new creature in Christ. Oh, indeed, our God loves new beginnings, and those of us who are Christians have experienced it. We have lived a transformed life, not conformed to the world, but transformed into the following of the Master. These texts over and again encourage us to recognize the newness that has been and is ours in Jesus. To further consider some of those thoughts, review some of those passages that I've placed on the wall to my left. In Philippians 2, that interesting and beautiful Philippian hymn, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The mind that Christ had in terms of humility and desirous of humble service to God should be our desire. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was found in the likeness of men. And then found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You and I then should have that mind that Jesus had, a term of love and compassion and humble service to God. That mind should also be the one that you and I desire. But consider yet another passage, this one in Romans 8, beginning in verse 1. In that interesting text, Paul, at the end of chapter 7, and you'll note the beauty and the power with which that fits into our discussion today, Paul had just closed Romans chapter 7, and it seemed as though all hope was lost. In fact, verse 24 of Romans 7 reads, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Paul had just discussed at length the civil war that raged within him. And he noted that he often found himself doing things that he did not want to do. And on the other hand, he found himself leaving undone good things he knew he ought to do. That's why he said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? If the book of Romans ended there, what a sad and tragic ending to that noble 16-chapter book. But in chapter 8, verse 1... The curtain is open and the bright light of the presence of the Savior comes upon Paul and he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them who walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh. No condemnation. All that darkness and the recognition of the hopelessness that's without Christ is taken away once Jesus enters the picture. You and I as Christians know what a change he's made in our life. As we look into the world and see how those who do not have Jesus live, we note the contrast from those who are washed in the blood, those who have their sights set on eternal glory, and those who desire that new beginning that shall be evermore realized in the more beautiful portals that we call heaven. You see, the recognition of this reminds us that newness, this new beginning, is a powerful, dramatic, and fundamental thing. But let us notice yet another observation. We've seen two thus far as we look a little deeper into these. Notice the statement about effort, though, that's involved. A new beginning almost invariably requires extensive effort. And we're now beginning to see why new beginnings are somewhat challenging. So far, the first two observations have helped us realize that new beginnings sound so wonderful. They sound so marvelous and so great. Why doesn't everybody pursue them? We're now beginning to see why it takes effort. It takes diligence. It takes commitment. It takes dedication. It takes labor. In fact, is it not fair to say that laziness doesn't get the job done? Laziness is not the path to a new beginning. The thought of sitting back and doing nothing is not the path of new beginning. We mentioned earlier about the possibility of resolutions that many may make as the year approaches. For some, it might be to lose weight. To others, it might be to give up a bad habit. For others, it may be more Bible study, more prayer. Perhaps there's many, many others that might be listed. But is it not fair to say that with regard to any new beginning, it won't come unless there's a dedication to bring it about? As the new year dawns, we can't just sit back and passively do nothing, for if we do, we'll live the same way next year that we have this year. There will be no change. That newness of beginning will require effort. It will require a sense of dedication that is taught to us in the Bible, by the way, isn't it? As far back as Genesis chapter 12. On that occasion, we encounter the patriarch of that Jewish nation, Abraham himself. There, God, in the first four verses of that chapter, said, Abraham, get thee up from thy kindred, thy household, and thy land, and go into a place that I will show thee. At that point, God simply gave instruction to go into a distant place. Abraham didn't know how far distant that would be. It turned out to be a little bit short of 2,000 miles. That's a long way in a day when there was no airplane, no train, the day when there was no car. That journey, in fact, was something that required a diligent and great amount of effort and what's more, an extensive amount of time. And yet Abraham dutifully did it. The next verse simply said that Abraham went by the bidding of the Lord. Isn't that an innocent but yet sterling and powerful statement? Abraham responded by pursuing that new beginning, but it required effort in the pursuit of it. Note yet another example. The children of Israel were in Egyptian captivity. That we well know. And in fact, they were slaves. Their life was filled with hardness and rigor. And yet God, by virtue of ten plagues, ultimately brought them out of Egyptian captivity and on the road to the promised land, a land that had been described to them as a land flowing with milk and honey, where you can dig precious meadows out of the earth, a land that is in fact good and bountiful and fertile. And yet the children of Israel, at least some of them, would have the audacity in Numbers 14.4 to say, Let us choose a captain and go back to Egypt. Can you believe it? There were some who were not interested in the effort it took to reach the new beginning. They weren't interested in investing that much labor, that much hardship and that toil to wind their way through the wilderness of sin and arrive at the beautiful land of Canaan. It's true, isn't it? That new beginning will require effort. We can't expect it to come if we don't invest something in the pursuit of it. To say that perhaps reminds us of one other example in the Old Testament. In Ezra chapters 1 through 6, you can maybe remember the scene of that interesting setting. The children of Israel had finished their their captivity in Babylon. The 70 years were over. By the decree of God, they were allowed to return to that land of Jerusalem. And they were able to start rebuilding the temple, the thing that they'd looked so forward to. One can't doubt that was a good thing, but question, was there effort involved in it? Were they able to rebuild that temple without no obstacles, without any resistance, without any difficulty? Oh, no. The first six chapters of Ezra detail to us that one problem after another arose, and every time when they met the problem head on and dealt with it by the grace and mercy of God, they were able to proceed, and finally that temple was rebuilt. You see, they had to endure hardship. There was labor involved in the pursuit of that good end, the rebuilding of the temple. It won't be any different in my life and yours. If there is a desire for a positive change in 2007, you and I will have to respond to that with dedication or it will never happen. We have to pursue it with zeal and a degree of commitment or it will never happen. In fact, it has well been noted, at least in scientific studies, many of the basic principles of mechanics that we understand that God has placed into this world are these. Things pursue the path of least resistance. The fundamental principle of mechanics is in fact this, that all processes take place along the path of least action. Satan wants you and I to follow that principle as well. In the human family, we must not follow the path of least resistance. For if we do, we will never make positive changes. We'll always live the way we've always lived, and no positive changes will ever happen. God has a higher principle in mind for you and me, a higher governing idea. We are moral creatures. We have the capability to reason, to pursue, to think, to work, to act. We're active and not passive. Thus, we must involve ourselves in pursuing that which is noble and right. And with commitment and with dedication, it will happen. And how much better we shall be for that effort invested. These examples that we've seen in the Old Testament challenge us what good happened when they did what God said, though it involved effort and though it involved much labor in some cases. The Christian life is also that way. Have you ever spoken with someone who is there pondering the decision whether to obey the gospel to say, I don't know if I can live the Christian life or not. That's when you and I with a kind word should say, you won't be alone. Christ is there with you. He's your elder brother, Romans 8.17. He is there to provide strength. Did he not say, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, Hebrews 13.5? We can appreciate the fact then that with his strength, those famous words of Philippians 4.13 come to mind, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. That text is as challenging today as it ever was. That alone is a verse of new beginnings, isn't it? But these observations hurry us on to consider yet another one. Look with me at the fact of this one. We would be remiss if we did not note that quite often a new beginning is a time of difficult adjustment. It's not as though it will come automatically. It's not as though as we've noted it should be easily accomplished. It should require an adjustment in our life to make that a reality. Some of these thoughts help us realize that when the children of Israel finally did reach the eastern shore of the Jordan River, across that river was that land to which they'd wandered for 40 long and arduous years. But do you remember what happened in Joshua 5 verse 12? As soon as they crossed that river and entered the promised land, this is what we read, and the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the old corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna any more, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. For forty years, every day, they had been given their manna. All they had to do was go gather it six days out of every week. But once they came into that new land, it was time for an adjustment. The manna wasn't given anymore. Now it was time to utilize the fruits of that land to which you've been wandering and which you now have in possession. There was a time of adjustment. Israel adjusted to that and you and I can make the necessary adjustments in our life as well. That person who obeys the gospel, that person is a new babe in Christ. He needs to grow. She needs to mature. A great deal of spiritual milk is needed, but that milk should in time come to be replaced by the meat of the word. Those words that we read in 2 Peter 3 verse 18, the last verse in that book, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Or those words in Hebrews 5 beginning in verse 12 that challenge all of us to grow and mature in the faith. That may be a time of difficult adjustment. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For every one that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. The realization is that you and I need to grow and mature, and if we have not, maybe we haven't enjoyed the new beginning the way that God intended. Maybe we are remaining in the past too much. Maybe it's time for a fresh start. A new sense of courage, a new sense of commitment will lead us down the primrose pathway of greater faith and greater recognition and greater fellowship with God. It may be a difficult adjustment, but doesn't that lead us to say the reward for that investment is well worth whatever the effort was. That's the way it is with God. He doesn't dangle before us one promise and then when the finality comes, He gives us less than what we expected. The Christian life will be the greater blessing when we increase that faith. And didn't the apostles themselves plead with Jesus, increase our faith? Luke 17, verses 1 and following. When you and I invest that effort and look forward to a new beginning and strive to make it real, it will in fact come to us with a great reward. And that perhaps hastens us to the fact of what was read in our hearing earlier from Revelation 21. Did you remember and note the statement made by Christ? The book of Revelation, remember, is that powerful lesson of victorious triumph of those who follow the Savior. And as he draws near the end of that book, the end of God's revelation for the human family, Christ there says, Behold, I make all things new. The context tells us that that's referring principally to that beautiful abode we call heaven. You and I may have spent hours trying to picture what heaven's going to be like. We may have spent hours trying to visualize and imagine it. Hours trying to appreciate just how glorious it'll be. I think we can ease each realize that even in our best we can't fully comprehend it but christ says behold i'm telling you i make all things new on one occasion he made us new when we obeyed the gospel our service to satan was over our life to christ had begun and how glorious and great it was and even when we passed the portal of death and await that glorious morning of resurrection we've lived in constant companionship with the Savior, fellowship with Him, and obediently, humbly serving Him, we can look forward to that time, and He'll say, Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I'll make thee ruler over many things. And when we enter that place, oh, indeed, how all things will have been made new. We'll have access to that tree of life again. The curse will be gone. And as we read about Revelation 21.4, A lot of things that mar our life here will not be found there. God is a God of new beginnings. These passages that we've looked at tonight, maybe we can use them to summarize our entire lesson in the following brief, but nonetheless interesting way. How thankful you and I can be that God is a God of new beginnings. Even when you and I are in sin, God doesn't give up on us that prodigal son of Luke 15. Notice the father waited and he waited and he waited and he waited, hoping the boy would come to his senses and come back home. And finally he did. And oh, how happy the father was. Even when you and I find ourselves, though once a faithful Christian, astray from God due to the fact Satan has gotten control, he waits and he pleads for us to come home. He wants us to start anew. He wants us to begin again. You see, our God loves those positive, great beginnings in which they're new. But we've also learned tonight that that new beginning is a fundamental change and that it will require effort. And not only that, that effort will be rewarded by the fact of its difficulty because in the finality the reward will be far better than anything the effort required. It may be that the closing passage then to our lesson tonight perhaps most appropriately would be found in the 18th verse of Romans chapter 8. Perhaps nobody could speak more about the hardship of life than could Paul, given what he endured for Jesus, and yet he could say that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Whatever you and I are called on to face here, it will be worth it. Heaven will be surely worth it all. Tonight, are you a faithful Christian? If not, you can have a new beginning. By obedience to the Master, by proper obedience to Him, those sins, whatever they will have been, will be washed away upon your repentance, your confession, your baptism. If you've done that, but have not remained faithful and true to your calling to Jesus, don't remain in that state make again a new beginning. God will help you. Christ is there to encourage you, and the Holy Spirit, by virtue of the Word, has made it known to you and me even tonight. If we could be of assistance to anyone in your obedience to the gospel in the public way, let us know that and let us be of help to you even now while together we stand and while we sing.